This is episode 233 of That Shakespeare Life. Just like the work of William Shakespeare, That Shakespeare Life is supported by listeners just like you who signed up to be our patrons. You can help support our show and contribute directly to programming when you join us as a patron at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. Hi, I'm Tiffany Stern, Professor of Shakespeare and Early Modern Drama with the Shakespeare Institute at the University of Birmingham. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend, Cassidy Cash. We used thou for only signs of intimacies or insults, which is one of the ways that Shakespeare used them liberally. I think there's a famous line that's something like, if thou thou'st him thrice, it shall not be amiss, which is essentially say, call him thou three times and let's get a duel going on. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. One of the most common issues with Shakespeare's plays is understanding the language. He used not only words that have fallen out of fashion for today's English language, but the pronunciation and even colloquial expressions, cultural references, and some jokes we find in the plays are all so far removed from the way that we talk today that it can be hard to understand what's going on, especially if you're just trying to read the plays instead of seeing them performed. At least in the theater, you have context clues to help you. But if you are also someone who finds Shakespeare's language hard to follow, then not only are you in good company, but today's episode is just for you. It's true that Shakespeare's language is difficult, and it turns out the history of linguistics and the development of the English language can explain why. During Shakespeare's lifetime is when English went through a major change called the Great Vowel Shift and was being influenced by key events going on at the time. Here today to share with us how languages grow and explain some of the phrases, words, and even pronunciation that was unique to English for Shakespeare's lifetime is our guest and professor of linguistics in the English department at University of Nevada, Reno, Valerie Friedland. Dr. Valerie Friedland is a professor of sociolinguistics and the former director of English graduate studies at the University of Nevada in Reno. Studying the science and culture behind the way we speak, her work received support from both the National Endowment for the Humanities and the National Science Foundation. She writes regularly for the popular Grammar Girl podcast and contributes a monthly blog on language to Psychology Today. Her new book, Like Literally Dude, Arguing for the Good in the Bad English, uncovers the surprising history and purpose behind all the speech habits we love to hate and is available for pre-order with Viking Penguin Press. You can also sometimes catch her appearing on The Lisa Show, The Every Little Thing Podcast, CBS News, The Nation, and Newsies, The Why. Find out more about Valerie's work in the show notes for today's episode, and there's also links there where you can follow her publications as well as check out her forthcoming book. Hello, Valerie. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Why is the language of Shakespeare's plays so hard to understand, even for modern day British English speakers? 
Uh, well, I think every ninth grader probably around the country facing Romeo and Juliet this semester is wondering the same thing. Uh, well, you know, if you think about modern English, think about how different it is when you listen to an older speaker versus a younger speaker. You hear a lot of different things. So, for example, younger speakers are using a lot of quotative like and uh, approximating adverbial like. So everything is like this and like that. And he said like this. And that's a big difference just between older speakers and younger speakers in our own lifetime. And then you throw in a lot of different differences like that, plus differences in words. So just think about new words today, chuggy, fit for outfit, drip for, you know, your bling. Uh, all those things are just in our own lifetime. So then, you know, get 400 years of those kinds of changes and things have moved really far from the English of Shakespeare because language inherently changes. It's just the natural state of language. But if you went 200 years prior to Shakespeare, it would be even vastly more different and we really wouldn't understand it. So I think we have to focus on the modern in early modern with Shakespeare because he's actually really the first of the batch of writers that we could possibly understand. So even though maybe a lot of ninth graders feel like, oh, there's so much difference between our speech and Shakespeare and who needs it, it's actually quite close to modern English if you look at the way language changes over time. So a thousand years ago, you couldn't even recognize English. It was more like German. But today, we can actually read Shakespeare. It just takes a little effort. So would Shakespeare have spoken with a dialect that was representative of his period? Yes, most likely, um, especially at that time, we didn't have the same sort of mobility that we have today. And we also didn't have television, uh, which is probably a really good thing. We had plays instead, and most of the actors would have been from that same area. So we probably actually have better representation of dialect in early literature than we do in modern literature, simply because of the lack of mobility, the lack of um, sort of everyday contact with people that didn't speak like you. Shakespeare was from a part of Britain, which was at the time sort of the prestigious dialect to know. So he was from a Southern British dialect, which was pretty much since the time of Old English, kind of the hip and happening place to be. But it really wasn't until the early modern period where it was the place to be. So in the Old English period, and even in Middle English, we had about five different dialect areas, and they were pretty distinct. And there wasn't a lot of mixing between them. And if you were a writer of that period in Old English or early or um, Middle English, you would have written in the dialect of your region. So if you were Northumbrian, you would have written in Northumbrian. We didn't really have one dialect that emerged as sort of the killer dialect that killed all the other dialects. But by the time we get to Shakespeare's time in the early modern period, London had risen. It was the cultural capital. It was the economic capital. It was the courtly capital. It was the place to be. And it was also the place to sound like. So that East Midland dialect area from the Middle English period had turned into the dialect to know, which was more of a Southern British dialect at that point. Some of the smaller differences among regions in the Middle English period had kind of dissipated and become larger regions. So the big differences in Shakespeare's time would have been between Northern British accents, West Country accents, and Southern British. And Southern British was the prestigious dialect at the time, the one that Shakespeare represented in a lot of his work 
work, the one that he probably spoke with. But he used other regional dialects sort of to poke fun at people. So in King Lear, for example, when Edgar is dressed up as a countryman, he's using a West Country accent. So clearly, Shakespeare was aware of these other differences and was using for comedic effect his How influential is the culture of a time period over how they spoke? Does the context of what was going on in England at the time of Shakespeare help us understand the phrases and expressions in his plays? Well, absolutely. I mean, just like today, right? If you are a speaker today, you're a speaker of your time. So all the cultural events, all the political events, all the social upheaval, all the cool new things, they all influence the way we talk. And Shakespeare's time was no different. I think the big difference is there was a lot more going on for him than there is for us. I mean, we might think we live in a time of a lot of turmoil, but go back to Shakespeare's time and there were a lot more things that would have factored into the way that he wrote and the things that were happening and the kinds of events that were really significant in their minds at the time, which really inspired his work. I think Shakespeare is actually a great example of someone whose work allows us to see into the period and what was going on. One of the big things that was happening at the time was English was just emerging as a language on its own two feet. Prior to that, English was kind of the bastard language. It was the language of the common folk that no one really wanted to admit to speaking. Had you been in the court a few hundred years prior, you would have had to speak Norman French or Anglo-Norman. And that was something that we were really emerging out of the shadow of. Uh, Latin had been very influential in the old and middle English period. French had been incredibly influential for a powerful prestige language in the middle English period. Finally, we were throwing off the shackles of these other languages. And for the first time ever, English was a language to write in. It was a language to speak in, and it was a language to learn in. It was not just the language to love in. And I think that we really see in Shakespeare's work. One of the ways we see it is not just in all his new vocabulary and these really inventive uses of language that he exhibits, but it's also in the um, discomfort that a lot of his characters have with the way they're speaking. Because at the time, there was a lot of uncertainty. There was a lot of instability in the social structure because people could now be a little more socially mobile than they had been in previous years. You could become wealthy from trade, from other forms of economic exchange, rather than just being born to it for the first time really ever. And language was one of the few remaining ways to signal social status. And so I think we see a lot of this in Shakespeare, where he uses different aspects of language to either make people seem really pompous and idiotic by overusing hypercorrect forms where it's actually silly, or by sort of being overly polite and using a lot of of, of titles because you had to show your courtly elegance in language at the time. And so people were really uncertain what that looked like. So a lot of people overdid it and they were super polite or they used tons of like, dear sir, dear madam, my great Lord types of titles, which we see a lot in Shakespeare. I know in school, we were taught how to pronounce Middle English when we were studying Chaucer, pronouncing words like knight as knigget, for example. During Shakespeare's lifetime is when the English language experienced what linguists now call the great vowel shift. Valerie, please explain for us what linguists are talking about when they talk about the great vowel shift and what did it mean in terms of how we should read the word knight in Shakespeare's plays, for example? I mean, Shakespeare wouldn't have said knigget, would he? No, actually, he wouldn't have, but he would have been aware of that earlier 
articulation. Uh, there is a short answer and a long answer here. So I'm going to give you the short one first, which is really about the word night. And then I'll tell you a little bit about the great vowel shift because it's actually a fascinating thing. And it really is interesting in terms of, of how it affected the way that Shakespeare spoke and why we, we wouldn't say Shakespeare the same way we say it today. But the short answer is the word night, which actually in old English would have been more like knicht because it would have had that German blach sound that no longer exists in English. It would have, by the time of Shakespeare, been pronounced more like noit, noit. So it sounds has that kind of Irish sound today because in the northern parts of Britain and in Ireland, the great vowel shift didn't go quite as far. So it halted pretty much at the period of Shakespeare there. So we can hear little reflexes of what Shakespearean English might have sounded like when we hear some Northern British speakers, a little more than Southern British speakers today. But the K, which had originally been in, in the language in Old English times, in the word night, it actually dropped off around the 15th century. So not even that far before Shakespeare. And some people might have even stuck it in there to sound scholarly because a lot of the archaic pronunciations were making a comeback in Shakespeare's time to sound smart, which is something he sort of pokes fun at when he talks about how people are trying to stick H's in everywhere, because that was another sound that had started to go away. And people that thought they were smart wanted to put them back in. And there were, there were really a lot of pressures to do this kinds of things in the early modern period. So he would have been aware of the fact that K had been pronounced, which it had been in Chaucer's time, for example, but he wouldn't have said it. He also would not have said the huh sound that I call it the uh sound, because that's the only time when American English speakers say it is when we go blech or uh we're expressing disgust. But in Old English, we had what were called palatal fricatives and velar fricatives, which are sounds that are still in many Germanic languages, which English was, but have uh, dissipated in English over time. And again, at the time that Shakespeare wrote, he probably heard some people stick it in there, but it would have been an archaic pronunciation and so no longer present. The really fascinating part, this is where we'll get to the great vowel shift, is the vowel that he would have used. In Old English, the vowel in night would have been an E sound, but because of the influence of the great vowel shift, which caused all the long vowels to rise and then lower in some cases, which simply means how they were articulated in the mouth. So when I talk about rising, I'm talking about your tongue is lifted higher in the mouth when you're pronouncing them. So if you say E, you can feel the tongue is really high in the mouth, but you say O, O, which is sort of E from neat to oi, noit. You can feel the tongue is actually lower. So e o linguistics is one of those really fun communal sports. <laughs> we all get involved. Absolutely. If you're going so to you make can, the noises, do it together. <laughs> do it together. Exactly. My students love that. Uh, you can't be embarrassed. So if you actually feel that difference, you can feel the tongue lowers. And that's sort of what happened is a lot of the long vowels rose. So the long vowels are the vowel e, a, o, u predominantly, those are the ones we're talking about. The short vowels didn't really have things happen to it. Well, all of them sort of switched positions by going up, but E is already at the top of the mouth. So the only way E can move is to move down. So the E sounds of old English became the Oi sounds of middle English, of, of sorry, early modern English, which became the I sounds of modern English. So we go from knecht, knecht to noit to night. 
So that hadn't happened yet by Shakespeare's time. The really interesting thing about Shakespeare is he was about two thirds of the way through the Great Vowel Shift because the span of the Great Vowel Shift started in about 1450, we think, and didn't end till 1750. So while the first four stages of the Great Vowel Shift were the most massive changes, and so they were complete or partially complete by the time Shakespeare was writing, the last few stages hadn't happened yet. So he was kind of caught in this middle ground. So the way that we would have pronounced vowels in his time would have been fairly different than the way we produce them today. What's actually quite interesting is most kids in kindergarten learning to spell encounter the reflexes of the great vowel shift because they have all those weird spellings that in modern English sound the same, but in Shakespeare's day would have not been the same. A great example of this are the words that are spelled E-E versus the words that are spelled E-A, which in modern English, we pronounce almost all of those as E sounds. So think about the word meet, right? There's two different meets. There's the let's meet up and hang out, which is spelled M-E-E-T, and then the, the meat we eat. And we have a great example also in the word eat. Both meat and the meat we eat are now pronounced E. But in Shakespeare's day, meat, like meet up, would have already shifted up to a higher vowel. So it would have been mate in Middle English. But by Shakespeare's day, it would have been meat. So let's meet up would have sounded very similar to how we say today. But in Shakespeare's day, meet, M-E-A-T, had not moved all the way up to the E vowel yet. It had started as met. So in Middle English, M-E-A-T would have been met. By the time we get to Shakespeare, it would have been mate. And then a few hundred years later, meet. So Shakespeare would not have had the merger of meat and meat that we have today, which is why he gets to pun the word reason with raisin in one of his lines where he says something like, if raisins were as if reasons were as great as blackberries, or I can't even remember exactly the line, but he compares reasons to blackberries, which makes no sense in modern English. But when in Middle English and early modern English, it would have been raisins. If raisins were as plentiful as blackberries, then he was punning blackberries to grapes. So it made a lot more fun sense back then. And that was simply because of the reflexes of the Great Vowel Shift. So that was a long answer. <laughs> Isn't it fun how understanding history can bring us new jokes we didn't even know we could enjoy? Exactly. From exactly. So many, right? He has a lot that were related to the Great Vowel Shift. So Rome and Room which today don't really make any sense together. Back in his day, they would have both sounded like Rome. Rome. So he could pun Rome and Rome, but we can't do that today, which is why ninth graders don't get the jokes. We do not use thee and thou in common speech today, speaking of things that trip us up in high school's Shakespeare classes, but it's all over Shakespeare's works. How was thee and thou used in Shakespeare's lifetime, and was it considered a formal or informal way to address someone? Uh, pronouns, one of my favorite topics. They're so exciting. We are kind of boring with pronouns today. I mean, sure, we have singular they coming in. We act like that's so racy and new, and actually pronouns have been in turmoil for the most of our history. And in fact, in Shakespeare's day, they were even more socially exciting. And thee and thou are perfect examples of how we don't understand half of the sort of little jabs and insults and dual-worthy comments that Shakespeare made in his time, because we don't really have that tension between thou and you that existed in Shakespeare's day. The only time we really encounter those are when we're reading Shakespeare or the Bible. 
<laughs> right? We see thou and thy and thine. But uh, actually, they have a really fascinating history that changed not only from the time of Shakespeare to the time of today, but the really important change came between the old English period where they first were used and the Shakespearean times. So if you go back a little bit, because we have to go all the way back to understand how he used them. If we go back to Old English and Early Middle English, what we find is the difference between thou and thee and ye and you was one of whether you were talking to one you or a lot of yous. Right. So in Middle English, if, if it was just you, one, you, I would have used thou if you were a subject position, meaning I was using it, you in the subject position of a sentence. And I would have used thee if I was talking about you as an object. Right. And I'm not meaning to objectify you no. here, but I simply mean the sentence. Well, I appreciate that. But no, we're fine. But I would have, <laughs> I don't, I don't want you to feel objectified. Hey, I do what I can. I appreciate But that. I would have said you. <laughs> I would have said you if I was referring to a lot of you. So if if you had friends over and I wanted to talk to you all, I would have said you, which marked plural. And then ye actually was the subject position. So I would have said ye do something, or I would have said do something to you as object position. So the difference between thou and thee and you and ye was actually subject object. But the difference between the sets, so thou and thee, and ye and you was actually singular versus plural. Pretty simple, pretty basic, right? But then what happened was the French, right? They came on over and they introduced all these different norms of polite society into Middle English. They were ruling the court, so everybody kind of wanted to be like them. And what does French have that English didn't? To and vous. And while on the surface it seems very similar to our thou ye difference, it was actually different because it was more based on what they call a power semantic than a singular plural difference. So the power semantic is the idea that you use two among intimates or among people that have less power than you or are socially you're inferior. And you use zoo as a polite and formal form. So if you're meeting someone you didn't know or someone that was higher rank than you, which for most people was almost everybody else, right? You would use zoo. So this was kind of imported into English and we already had pronouns to kind of make work this way. We had thou and we had ye. Now, I'm not exactly sure why ye fell out as the least popular one, but it basically started to become you used that way. So the contrast was between thou and you. And when you wanted to speak up to someone higher status or someone more formally, you would use you, which was the polite form. And when you were talking, for example, to your servants or your children, you would use thou. But by the time we get to Shakespeare, this had actually fallen away to become more of what we call a solidarity semantic. So instead of almost everybody actually being thou, because most people were just common people and they would have been thous, and only the people with status or rank would have been you, or when you were trying to be very polite and formal, by the time we get to about 14 and 1500, we find that people, because of this inability to tell who was high rank and who wasn't anymore, to the same degree you had been in Middle English, where everybody knew who was who, we had to be really careful. So we didn't want to insult people by calling them a sort of inferior name like thou. We wanted to say you because that way we were being polite and formal, no matter who we were talking to. So no one would get upset with being called you, but people might be offended to be called thou if they felt their status was higher than that. So for this purpose of solidarity or friendship or equality, we started calling everybody you. 
unless there was a reason to call them thou, because either they were someone we were intimate with, like a spouse would often, they would often refer to as thou kind of a pet name or a child you would call thou because obviously you were higher in rank than they were. Or if you had a servant, you might still refer to them as thou. But even in that case, if it was a servant you really cared about, you might say you. So really what happened is we used thou for only signs of intimacies or insults, which is one of the ways that Shakespeare used them liberally. I think there's a famous line that's something like, if thou thou'st him thrice, it shall not be amiss, which is essentially say, call him thou three times and let's get a duel going on, right? Because he's calling attention to the fact that thou signaled that you were sort of insulting somebody. So you find actually in his work, a really interesting use of thou and you where he he has very subtle differences in relationships among characters changing signaled exclusively through his changes between calling them you in one scene and thou in another. So for example, you when they're wanting to be flattering and thou when they want to be insulting or you when they don't know each other that well and then thou when he's like, I want to get with you, babe. So he uses them in very subtle ways that really showed how they were shifting at that time to be used for this solidarity semantic. And really, by the end of Shakespeare's life, pretty much everybody was you. So it was sort of almost archaic, even in his own writing, the way that he represented the use of those terms. Because by that time, I think most people in early modern English knew better than to thou somebody. Now, Shakespeare is given credit for contributing to the English language. Is this, you know, his playing around with the use of pronouns and some of the words that he's throwing out in his plays? Is he, or I guess his plays, contributing to the English language and the way that English is spoken today? Absolutely. You know, he was he was contributing because he's the record we have. So we also get to know, get a window into the vernacular speech of the time. But I think he also contributed that he did do some really inventive stuff with language. Um, and so some of the things we see, we probably see for the first time. And whether it was the first time ever or just the first time it was recorded, it's hard to say. But absolutely, he contributed in a lot of different ways. I think if you have someone that works with literature, they'd say he clearly uh, contributed to English in the way that things were written, right? In the way that verse was written. And he played around with things like blank verse that he made use of. But he also alternated between sort of rhyming couplets and prose for the common speak. So these were kind of interesting ways with literary play that he contributed. But I think from a linguist perspective, where he had the most valuable and forceful impact was in introducing new vocabulary, whether it was really the first time it was ever spoken or whether it was just the first time it was written down, doesn't matter. It was the first time we have a record of it. Um, thousands of words, right, appeared for the first time in Shakespeare. But things that we don't even realize, like his use of phrasal verbs, was something we really hadn't seen before. Now, phrasal verbs are verbs that have a verb plus a preposition that becomes so common in their use that now we don't even think of them as being separate entities. So that would be something like drink up or come away or get off, right? These are really common. How often do you hear people say, get off the couch to their dog all the time? But we wouldn't have said this type of thing in Middle English. One of the reasons we wouldn't have said it is in the old and Middle English period, the structure of the language was vastly different. And actually, vastly is a great word that we got introduced by Shakespeare. So thank you, Shakespeare. It was so structurally different that we could not have had phrasal verbs in the same way that we did in Shakespeare's time. Because in Middle English and early earlier forms of English, we had what's called a synthetic form of language, which means it had a lot of inflections. It had a lot of endings because it was a language that marked where everything went in a sentence. 
by the endings those words took. So when you have word endings that are used to mark things like case and gender and plurality, number, you don't really need prepositions or auxiliary verbs. They're not really part of the language because all that's done through endings. But as we lose that, which we did because of big changes that happened in the language between the old English period and the early modern period, we had a lot of pressure from other languages, a lot of changes in our stress pattern. And over time, it caused the endings of words to fall off. Well, when you lose these endings that told us what, who did what to whom, you have to do something else. So we get auxiliary verbs that tell us things about tense, right? We get prepositions that tell us about who was doing what to whom. And so for the first time, we have all these new things we can play around with in language. And we're not as constrained to having a word act as a certain thing because it has a certain ending on it. When something has an ending as a verb, you can't really change it to be a noun. When something has a noun ending, you can't really change it to be a verb. But when those things go away, you can make verbs out of nouns and nouns out of verbs and adjectives out of adverbs, and you can do all sorts of crazy stuff. And Shakespeare did crazy, crazy, crazy things. Like he was really the first to verb stuff. So what I mean by verbing stuff, it's a real fancy linguistic term. (laughs) That's the technical jargon Yes, that's the technical term. He took nouns and he made them verbs, like the word ghosted, right? A ghost was a noun prior to Shakespeare. And then he says, Brutus ghosted me, essentially. So, you know, we still use ghosted today. It Thanks to Shakespeare, we say that. But what was really novel was not ghosted as a word. It was the fact that he was taking a noun and making it to a verb. So when we make fun of kids who say, oh, I hate adulting today, we can thank Shakespeare for that right? Because that's who taught them they can do those things. Not to mention he put really cool endings on things. He stuck prefixes on words they hadn't been on before. A lot of them not successfully, but whatever. You know, he did great things. It was super creative and it was a really fun experimental period of language. And Shakespeare personifies that in his writing. So I guess I want to know what happened to American English. I mean, one topic we've covered here on the show previously is how the original Virginia colonists came from Shakespeare's England, and they spoke the exact same English that Shakespeare was speaking. So why then is American English so markedly different from British English, not only in sound pronunciation, but even in our vocabulary words? Well, first, I think the one important thing to note is that British English is profoundly different today from Shakespearean English. So the Elizabethan English that Shakespeare spoke and the Queen's English that was Queen Elizabeth II rather than the first is vastly different. It's not that American English changed so much as English has changed so much. So it's really more of a triangle, I think, than a direct line. So you have, let's say the top of the triangle is Elizabethan English. And then what we have is a development of English along two different planes, where both moved far away from the original source, but in different ways. So if you look at American English, we actually have some features of Elizabethan English that don't exist anymore in modern British English, but yet are were retained in American English. So it's not completely true that we're that different than Elizabethan English. We're different in some ways and not in others. So in modern British English, for example, you don't really have post-vocalic R sound. So words like arse, are now ass, (laughs) a little more fancy sounding in British English, os, or you have something like cart, caught, because the post-vocalic R's fell away in the late 17th and 18th century in Britain, but not in American English, because a lot of the early colonists came at a time of Shakespeare when R's were still pronounced. So Shakespeare would have had all his R's, 
And most colonists at that time, pretty much all colonists, regardless of what part of Britain they came from, would have had their R's. So that was really foundational to American speech. And the changes that happened later in modern British English were not brought over to the same degree as they were in those early periods. Another good example of a sound that hasn't changed in American English, but has in modern British English is the ah vowel, which would have been ah in Shakespeare's time as well. So this is in words like cat, bat, or ant, for example, is a, a one way that we still recognize that difference today. So you either have an aunt or you have an ant. Well, in British English, you have, or Southern British English, I should say, you have an aunt. But in American English, you have an ant, right? So they can be confused with those cute little bugs. <laughs> but in Shakespeare's day, you would have had an ant as well. So this is another thing that changed since Shakespeare's time in modern British English, but not in American English. But of course, there's vast changes that occurred in American English that made us much more different from both Shakespeare and modern British English that are far past those two things, um, where maybe modern British English might have a little more in common with Elizabethan English or have changed differently. And this is because it wasn't just the Virginians that came over, right? Those early colonists, you had Virginia, which, yes, was made mainly a Southern British, a sort of aristocratic group. So a lot of the colonists in Virginia were sort of sons, a lot of them second sons of well land-owning Brits, and they came over because, well, they were the second son, so they didn't matter as much, and they needed to forge their own way. But they were still kind of fancy and rich and spoke with that prestigious Southern British accent. But we didn't get the same kinds of colonists elsewhere. So if we look at Pennsylvania, for example, the Pennsylvania colonies were mainly settled by Quakers, and the Quakers mainly came from Northern British parts, and they spoke quite a different dialect even in 16 and 1700. So the English of the Midwest, the English of the heartland of America was not settled by the Virginia colonists. It was actually the Pennsylvania colonists that were most influential on the heartland dialects of American English. And so you had the Northern British speakers and you had a heavy Scotch-Irish settlement in Pennsylvania and the Inland South as well as German and, and some Dutch influence. So those influences were really strong, and they settled the majority of the United States. And I think they hung on to their these and thous well into even the 20th century among well, the Quaker right. even some Even some Quakers still use it. And that's because actually at the time when Shakespeare was writing, a little later actually, the founder of the Quakers was vehemently opposed to this shift from thou to you for sort of moral and religious reasons. And so it was part of this movement of plain speech that the Quakers had where everybody was thou because we were all supposed to be humble. And you was kind of a mark of uh, being uppity and snobbish. And that was the worst thing you could possibly do. And in some ways, the Quaker resistance to the shift towards you is probably something that propelled it along because the Quakers really didn't have a great rep back in the day. Uh, which is probably not their fault. It's the fault of uh, religious intolerance at the time. Well, I know we would love to explore the pronunciation of, of Shakespeare's English further. What are some of your favorite books or resources you can recommend we use to learn more? Well, there are a couple great websites. I think that's probably the easiest way to get a little more window into Shakespeare's time. One is if you just look at the website for the Oxford English Dictionary, which has a lot of first uses of words that were in English, you find a lot of blogs they've written. And a lot of them talk about 
English of times past. A lot of them go over Shakespeare or early modern English. So you can just sort of browse their collection of blogs. That's a great place. And, and there's also a lot of other interesting information on that site. But one of the best sources for original pronunciation, especially in regard to Shakespeare, is anything by David Crystal or his son, Ben, who have really pioneered the original pronunciation. And I had the good fortune of meeting Ben years ago when he did original pronunciation here at University of Nevada. Um, they have a site that's, I think, called Original pronunciation.com. And you can just go to that site. And they also have a lot of YouTube videos where they act out Shakespeare in original pronunciation. And I think those would be really fun sources. Those are excellent resources. We will link to those in the show notes for today's episode. And both David and Ben Crystal are friends of that Shakespeare life. They've been on our show a couple of times. And Ben even demonstrates original pronunciation in one of our episodes just for listeners of our show. So we'll make sure to link to that in our show notes as well. Now, Valerie, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's, what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible, so your choice would be in addition to those. Well, that's a very generous offer to be able to take those with me. <laughs> we want you to be well set up. I mean, I like you are it. deserted on the island. <laughs> Do I get snacks too? Because oh, that would be important. Oh, sure. Yes. <laughs> we'll send it out in a in a care box for you. <laughs> okay, perfect. Uh, you know, it's funny because I was thinking about that question. What would I want on a deserted island? I think a great reference book that would keep me busy for decades before I was saved would be the Oxford English Dictionary. Because if I had the complete Oxford English Dictionary, we're talking about over a thousand years of words, I could do like, you know, 500 a decade. <laughs> so I think I would want that because I could also go back to the complete works of Shakespeare and the Bible. I need an early version of the Bible, just note to self and look up all the stuff just to make sure they were right. And then I'd also want maybe a John Grisham novel or something just to pass the time away. That's how you know you're talking with a professional historical linguist when their choice of a desert island book is a massive dictionary. Well, you got to stay busy, you know? <laughs> I think so. Yeah. That way you can just jump back in when you get back to the mainland. Exactly. <laughs> so what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? Well, I'm really, really excited about my new book that I'm actually just finishing the proofs on, and it's already out there in the world for pre-order. It's called Like Literally Dude, Arguing for the Good and Bad English. And it really is a trip through time for all the speech habits we love to hate. So if you're interested in the way that Shakespeare used language, there's a ton of Shakespeare in there because a lot of the things we hate, like our ums, our likes, our literallys, they existed Hundreds of years ago, even though we think they're new things that drive us crazy today, there were actually not so new things, and they probably drove us crazy back in the day as well. But they're really interesting, fascinating, purposeful features of our, our speech. And I think they're really interesting from the perspective of Shakespeare because he wrote in vernacular. He wrote what colloquial language was like around him. And that's exactly what these features are for us today. That is a fascinating book. I'm really looking forward to that coming out. And we will have links in the show notes where you can follow Valerie's work as well as get a copy of this book when it becomes available. So make sure you check there to be able to follow that. Valerie Friedland, thank you so much for being here with us this week. This conversation has been really fun to look at all the details of how Shakespeare spoke and his influence on the language that we speak today. I thank you so much for being here and sharing this history with us. This was a fun conversation. Absolutely. It was great. Thanks. If you like the show today, be sure to let us know about it by dropping us a comment and a rating on the platform you're listening from today.
You can connect with Valerie and learn more about her work, as well as see a curated list of books and resources she's put together for you on the best places you can learn more about linguistics and language from Shakespeare's lifetime. There's also some bonus history images, paintings, and museum artifacts we've gathered up and shared with you there related to the history you're learning about today. Find all of these things and a few extras at CassidyCash.com slash episode 233. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP233. That Shakespeare Life extends its historical focus to our funding model, being supported in part by listeners who sign up to be patrons of the show, which is the same way William Shakespeare funded his work during his lifetime. Patrons who support the show are treated to behind-the-scenes extras, including sneak peeks at upcoming guests, the chance to submit your own questions to be asked live on the air, as well as ebooks, worksheets, and other classroom resources that coordinate with the show and with Shakespeare's plays. Due to the patronage of our listeners, That Shakespeare Life is available to listen anywhere in the world completely commercial free join us as a patron today and unlock all the great bonuses at patreon.com slash that shakespeare life that's patreon.com slash that shakespeare life that shakespeare life is researched and produced by me cassidy cash our audio engineer is gary mayholm that's it for this week thank you for listening i'm cassidy cash and i hope you learn something new about the bard i'll see you next time Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.